All right. Um, good morning again. Uh, good to be with you guys. The, the greetings from Tempe. Uh, well, Luke and I talked about, um, actually we talked to other congregational pastors, uh, what about swapping the deck and then switching around and uh, Gilbert and Arcadia already had plans and I, I emailed Luke back and said, it'd be great, I'd love for you to come to Tempe um, and I would love to come to Gateway and teach at a nice clean church and nice people, people who smile and uh, excited about that. Um, in fact, what I said is when you come to Tempe, here's what I want you to teach. I want you to go and teach them on how to love people um, and not just to say you love people, but to, to like how to say hello, how to say hi. Um, I know you laugh at that, but our church is, we have a great community in Tempe, and I think that when we do life together, we do shared life really, really good, especially because many of us are in the same demographic. Um, however, we're not the most, in fact, we might be the least welcoming church in the, in the universe. Um, there, 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 there is just a sense about us when you come in, you'll see people hanging out with each other, you'll see people talking, but if you're a newcomer, until you get in, you're just kind of on the surface. I mean, I cannot begin to tell you how many emails I get of people that say how much they love the church, but they didn't like the people. And I'm like, well, the church is the people. Yeah, all right, whatever, right? And so I wanted Luke to go over there with his huge calves to intimidate them and, and, and let them know uh, that they should love people, and, and, uh, and I, would, I would come over here. And it's great being here because uh, I came with uh, one of our interns, and, and people welcomed us. We've been here since 745. People haven't stopped saying, hello, how you doing? Um, they offered us things. They, they asked to pay my mortgage. I mean, you guys have been so... So grateful, so grateful, so I appreciate it. And so um, what I was going to come and not yell at you guys, um, but mainly come to talk about all of life being offered Jesus. Uh, One of the things that we talk about in redemption, every week in Tempe, I get up and I do exactly what Matthew says and what Luke says is we're one church, multiple congregations, and we believe that all of life is offered Jesus. And, and every so often I'll get people that say, okay, what, that, that sounds really good. And I want my life to be about Jesus, but what does that mean? So like, what, where do you guys get that from? What does that mean? And so what I wanted to do today is talk about what we mean that all of life is offered Jesus. And so the passage that we just heard read from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, um, talks about Jesus and, and ultimately Jesus as being supreme. And so three things I want to look at as we look at the narrative. One is that creation is offered Jesus. He created it. Um, the church is all for, for Jesus, meaning he's redeeming the church to embody this good news. And then ultimately the end goal, consummation, is all for Jesus. Um, we're going to look at that and, and, and have three takeaways of what that means in our life and how we can walk away thinking. Now, here now, I said this last hour too. My goal is not for you to walk away with three things that you can see that all of life is all for Jesus. My goal, goal is for you to walk away, have lunch, have breakfast or whatever time it is here, um, to, to with your friends to go and your family. How do we do this? Um, because this is something that is hard because you never get a day off. Meaning every inch, every time, every square mile of your life that you're living under the submission of Jesus. And so um, I'm going to pray, but before I do, just because I didn't do it last hour, listen, um, I'm really into communication and you talking back to me. And so if I say something that is true, I may say, amen. If you think it's true, you're supposed to say, okay, I'm just saying, because I know last hour they were just looking at me and I'm like, this ain't right. This ain't right. So... I want you guys to bow your heads and let's ask God by the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we've been given. God, I thank you for this congregation. Um, I thank you that you have it here, um, Lord, in a place where it is growing. Father, where there are other religions sprouting up all over here. And Father, where there are many people, Father, many children, many families, Father, that need to know the gospel. And they need to know Jesus. 
So I thank you for the men and women who are here, Lord, who have believed upon Jesus, Lord, and have uh, made a commitment to follow you, that you'd give them grace and that you'd give them encouragement by looking to Jesus, your son. And for the few that are here today, Lord, that do not believe in you, God, I just pray that today would be a day of salvation, that they would see something that is true of Scripture, that is true about Jesus, and that your spirit would draw them to yourself. Father, I pray that you'd remove me, that we may see the cross and the power of the gospel only in the work and through the work of your son, Jesus. Father, we thank you and we praise you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Uh, A few years ago, I was an intern at the Gilbert campus, and in fact, Matthew was the worship leader at that time, and one of the songs that we used to sing, and I still don't know who who, who wrote the song, but the chorus went, let what we do in here fill the streets out there. Um, I'm madly in love with you. I'm madly loving you. Let us dance for you, or something like that. Real weird, but Good song, right? And so the song in itself, I love because I like the ideal. As a person who kind of fancies myself in his evangelist, I love introducing people to Jesus. I love what we did in there. And so when we were in that room, um, I love Matthew leading us in song through worship. And I, and I love hearing the, the teaching of the word. And I love the fact that we got to talk about Jesus and celebrate Jesus. And the thought for me was, how about we take this and then take it out there? But I never knew what that meant. Meaning, does that just mean evangelism? Um, does that mean that we walk outside and just tell people what we did in here we should do out there? Should we bring Matthew out there and have him sing and dance? No one's getting saved that way, right? And so there, 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 there's a sense of saying, what does that mean? Um, I begin to think about how to embody my faith. How do, how do take the gospel of Jesus Christ and what did that look like in politics and what did that look like in sports and what did that look like in arts and what did that look like in the marketplace? What did it look like for teenagers and what did it look like for adults? Meaning there has to be something of the nature, the saving nature of Jesus Christ that speaks more than just evangelism, more than just reading your Bible, nothing less than that, more than prayer, um, more than just giving and serving baptism and communion. And I begin to realize um, through reading and understanding from people is that there is a difference between a Philippians Christian and a Colossians Christian. And what we try to embody at redemption is both. Here's what I mean. When you read through the book of Philippians, Philippians shows Jesus as the suffering servant, that he lays down his life, that he's humble. And when we read that book, we, we, we want to take the gospel um, that Jesus has died for us and now looking to Christ who has forgiven us past, present, and future, that we want to embody that life in all that we do. And it comes to personal devotion, that our whole lives is, are committed to Jesus. And that, that's good. Um, and then you have the book of Colossians. And we don't see Colossians, uh, Jesus in Colossians being this humble servant. What Paul writes as it's in Jesus, it, it explains his deity and that he's supreme, and that he's preeminent, and that he's Lord of all things, and that he goes to the cross, as it says in Colossians 2, and he disarms the rulers and the authorities, meaning the demons. He disarms them by triumphing over them. Like, it's a very powerful, reigning Christ. So we have Christ who came into this world, who lived the life that we should have lived, and died the death that we should have died. And then we have Christ who now ascends into the heaven, and he reigns over all things. And so when we look at those two books, we say, as redemption, we want to be in church that embodies both. That we have deep, robust understanding of the gospel and devotions, and yet we understand the implications of the gospel in all of life. So that's where we get the tagline. And it was Luke who actually came up with it. All of life is all for Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning as we walk through here is see that Jesus created all things. And then after the fall, and because of sin, Jesus comes to redeem, and he begins by redeeming the church, and the church is his witness, until finally he will consume all things 
ultimately consummate all things, excuse me, and bring things all back under his reign and order. And so if you would follow me in chapter 1, verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. A little context on the book of Colossians. Colossians in itself, the whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 24 that everything that was written in the Old Testament was written to point to him. Um, And you will find no other book in the New Testament that explains and talks about Jesus more than the book of Colossians. And so Paul writes this book to a a people and a church that's there that's struggling in some ways with similar things that we're struggling with. And that's the ideal of dualism. And when I say dualism, meaning that some things are sacred and some things are secular, or there are some things that are spiritual and the other things that are material, they don't really matter. Um, Or you can hear it explained, um, there's an upper story and there's a lower story. What matters in the upper story matters most and everything else doesn't matter. I mean, everything else gets, gets relegated to just being of value. Now, here's how it's happened for us. And we've just accepted it as Christians because we, we, we don't think a lot. Um, we have in our culture a thing called the Enlightenment. And when the Enlightenment came, what we thought as a culture now, as a people um, in Europe, in Canada, in America, is that the way that we will build a better society is through reason. Um, is by being rationalistic. It's by taking the scientific method and whatever we can put through the grid of the scientific method, not through the grid of the gospel, but the grid of the scientific method, that will be true. And if it doesn't go through that, at best it could be value. And so here's what I mean. One plus one equals two. That can go through that grid. It's a fact. And we all believe it as public truth. Unless you went to U of A. All right? And uh, Sorry. Last, last hour, there was a lady with a big U of A shirt, and I kept seeing it, and I, and I was like, Lord, save this person, help this person. <laughs> I'm done. I'm back to what I was saying. So, so now, now we have, that's a fact, public truth. Now you take something like Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Savior. Jesus has come to redeem all of life in the work and through the work of what he's done on the cross. Well, you take that, and it doesn't go through the scientific method. We can't test that. And so we put it as a value. And so our culture says, hey, you can believe in your Jesus. You can even believe that he's the savior of the world. You can even believe that he's Lord, but we're not going to have that as fact or truth. Make it a value. And as Christians, instead of pushing into that and thinking, what we've said is, okay. And then we take language that says, he, and I have a, how do you know Jesus is Lord? Not because he's Lord, but because he's in my heart and I have a personal relationship with him. So it becomes a value. Meaning, when we go to work, we keep Jesus in our hearts. Um, When we go to the playground, we keep Jesus in our hearts. When we engage in politics, we definitely keep Jesus in our heart. And so we we, we don't come into the public square understanding the gospel, understanding that all of life is all for Jesus. Now, I'm not saying public faith means that we stand outside and yell at everybody and tell them how they need to believe in Jesus. There, there are moments for that, and that happens. I'm saying thinking uniquely through the grid of the gospel, meaning that there's nothing that's off limits. In fact, we believe with Abraham Kuyper when he says that there's no square inch of the universe of which Christ alone is sovereign, that he doesn't look at and declare, that's mine. 
So Jesus Christ is Lord, not because it can go through the scientific method or not. Jesus Christ is Lord whether you believe it or not. Amen? That, that's public truth to be proclaimed. So Paul now, trying to stress that point, steps in in Colossians, talking about Jesus um, before he even took on flesh, talking about Jesus at creation. And here's what he says, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. Creation is all for Jesus. When it says that he's the image of the invisible God, some of you go, well, I understand my Bible to know that we are creating the image of God too. So is Jesus like us? No, Paul's not saying that. Paul's saying, when we are created in the image of God, you and I are created in the sense that we have likeness of God. We were able to think. We were able to feel. We were able to have the ability to choose. We have volition. But when he says that Jesus is, Jesus is not created in the image of God, but he's saying he is God. A parallel verse to this would be Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, in which the writer of Hebrews says that he's the radiance of God, the exact imprint. What he's saying is Jesus created. He is God. And then he goes forward with language that could be confusing too, and it says that he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, many Christian sects, um, sects, that's what I said, um, say that Jesus is born. Um, Jehovah Witnesses would be that, and they would say that's why they deny his deity, because of this passage. But Paul is not saying that Jesus, when he says firstborn, he's not saying that Jesus is born like you and I were born. He's reaching back into the Old Testament, and he's taking thought and concept of the Old Testament. When the language of firstborn was communicated, it not only meant, um, not all the time that it meant in chronological order, but it often meant, most often it meant power, inheritance, status. Um, that's what he's saying. Jesus has authority and power over creation. What Paul is trying to communicate to this, to this world that believed that the material things were evil and the spiritual things were holy, he's saying, no, Jesus created it all and he's God. And he goes forward to talking about the things he created. Verse 16, he says, By him, or by means of him, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Here's what Paul is saying. Everything that you and I see was created by God. Everything that we can touch, everything that we can drink, everything that we can feel, everything was created by him. You and I are, are able to take raw material within culture and build things. We could build chairs. We could build buildings. Um, we can make coffee. Um, we could do. We can make our bed, some of you. Um, there's a lot of things that we can do, but we cannot create out of nothing. When it speaks of God creating out of nothing, what we have here is reminiscences of Gen- Genesis chapter 1, where there's nothing and God speaks it into existence. And Paul is saying, Jesus did that. He created everything that we see. And he also created the things that we don't see. When he says visible and invisible, um, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, rulers or authorities communicates the uh, angelic world, the spiritual realms, which again, as Westerners, as Americans, um, especially most of us evangelical Christians, we, we don't believe in the spiritual realms. Like we, sometimes we forget that there's a devil and there's a Satan and there's demons and there's angels. Like to, to us, that just seems like a movie somewhere. Um, to the church in Colossae and to the church in Ephesus, when you read those two books, you see these things had to have been real to them because Paul writes to them. See, we like the book of Romans because the book of Romans is very linear. We love it. But when it comes to Colossians and Ephesians, um, Paul talks about this manifold wisdom of the church, which we'll talk about in a second, but he's talking about the spiritual realms. And he's saying, Jesus created that too. And there are angels. 
There are angels who, in their own volition, chose to believe, trust, and follow God. And there are angels, according to their own volition and choice, they chose to rebel against him, and they're now called demons. And Jesus created them as well. And what he's saying, Paul is saying, is Jesus is not only the architect, but everything um, was created for him and by him. Meaning, he's the artisan. Um, He's not only the agent, but he's the aim of creation. So everything that is created, you, me, and everything that we can see and the things that we cannot see are made to bring glory to him. That's the purpose. That's it. It's to bring glory to him. Paul closes up this first point in Jesus and saying, in verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Again, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that it's all being held together by the power of his word meaning he sustains it all, everything that happens. He's absolutely sovereign. He actively causes or allows all things for our good and for his glory, meaning everything in creation matters to Jesus because he created it. He didn't just throw things away. And the reason why that matters, so what for us is, if, if all of creation is all for Jesus, meaning like stuff matters to us, like everything matters. And, and what I mean by everything matters, meaning we can't say certain things in this world, they're neutral or they're just evil, and so we're just gonna throw them away. As a church, we've been notorious for that. Certain mu- rap music, it's bad. Throw it away. You guys are like, yeah, that, that's true, right? No, I'm not trying to say that, right? That some things we throw it away, right? It's like me when I go to Ikea. Um, I, I, don't, I don't fix things. I don't build things. I pay people to do that, right? And my wife wanted this dresser, uh, this dresser type thing, and, and I tried to be something that I'm not. And I was like, oh, I'll go get it. And I bought it and I'm looking at the directions and, and I don't like the directions. I like pictures and they're, and I put it all together and it looks like it's fine. The drawers open, they close and there's a whole bag full of, um, you know, parts and screws and everything. And she goes, what's that? I'm like, oh, it's just extra. You know, they just give you extra. I had no idea what those things were for. The thing fell apart, right? Of course it fell apart. And, and I think sometimes in the same way we, we look at, we look at creation like that. We look at certain industries, uh, we look at certain artifacts, we look at certain things and we shut off. And what that means with our faith is um, we have an idea that there are some things that are just more holy than other things. There are some things that bring glory to God and there's things that don't. And usually where that shows up is in what we work, the way we work. And you may, not, you may say, I don't believe that. I believe that God is Lord over all things, therefore all things bring the glory to God. And yet functionally, by hearing you talk and the way you talk about what you do, majority of the time of your life, which is work, you don't talk about it that way. Um, I learned this when I was a student pastor. We used to ask our students every year, there's about 30 students together, leaders, of, our student leaders, and ask them what was the godliest thing they can do. Because many of them were juniors and seniors and they're getting ready to go to college and, and I knew that they were going to be challenged in a lot of things in college. Um, I wanted to know what we had taught to them or what they had heard from us if it, if it mattered. Um, here's what I mean. I would say, what is the most godly thing that you can do to honor and glorify God? Like, if you were going to be uh, a sold-out Christian, what is the thing that you would do? What are, what are the occupations? And they would say three, without a doubt. And the three were um, missionary, pastor, and then worship leader. Like, those are the godliest thing. And I said, why is that? Like, because that's what God likes the most. And guys, let me just tell you something. That, that's just not true. That's not true. Um, in fact, Either we've taught them bad or they're listening bad. And I know we want to say, well, they're just listening bad. No, I think that in a lot of ways in church, we've communicated that. We've communicated that there are certain things that that you cannot bring your faith into. And so we've taught that vocation in itself, it's just a means to an end. I mean, how many of you say when you go to work, yeah, you know, I just go to work, right? I mean, it's just a job. Um, In the beginning of creation, what we see before sin even entered this world, God gave Adam a job. 
And then he gave him a wife. He gave him a job to work. Now, though all things were created by God and for Jesus um, and they're for his glory, they've all been tainted by sin. Not destroyed, just spoiled, dislocated. Same thing with, with work. And so whatever your industry is, um, that industry, though it, it, you will have thorns and thistles and it's hard, you're there for a reason. And you're there not just to make money. You're there not just for the bottom line. You're there to glorify God. And so if we have the mentality that, ah, oh, that's just work, I can guarantee you what your life is like at work. And people see you as the Christian and going, yeah, that's how Christians are supposed to work because that's exactly how Bob works and that's how Sally works. Um, even to the point of changing diapers. I know that that's small. Me and my wife used to have this conversation and she goes, sometimes I get the sense that you think what you do is more important than what I do. And I said, it is, sweetheart. No, I didn't. <laughs> and, and, and part of it came down to how we were stewarding our time. I was communicating to her what I did because souls mattered more. Um, was What I did was far more important than what she was doing at home. When she first became a stay-at-home mom and we had Noah, and she'd go, you don't understand. Um, I come, you come home and you're exhausted and you're tired, but I want you to talk to me. And I'm like, I've been talking to people all day long. She goes, I know. And I've been with this child who doesn't speak English. All he does is poop on me. Sorry, guys. Uh, all he, you know, he does kid stuff, right? Um, and she goes, I want an intellectual conversation. And me, I was like, ow, oh, right? And, and there was a sense where I did not value that. And part of it is I had a truncated view of the gospel. Meaning to me, to be a good Christian, you read your Bible, you pray, you sing some songs, you give a little money, you serve, you care for your wife, and that's it. And, and sports, math, uh, business, those things, they were just things until Jesus was going to come back. And when I, read, when I read this passage, I see God cares about it. And if Jesus cares about it, we should care about it. In fact, if Jesus created it and he didn't get rid of it, there's a purpose. If Jesus says, okay, now sin has entered this world and it's tainted every area, whatever industry you're in, it's tainted it. And yet he decided not to get rid of it, but yet the Bible teaches us that he decided to redeem it. That after Genesis, we see sin, 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 but yet God is still giving grace, his unmerited favor to people. And then finally, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus comes now in flesh and he begins to build a community of people. And this particular community of people, he wants to embody his mission. And that people is the church. Meaning, if we looked at Jesus, all of creation is all for Jesus, and now we get to the church, our role in the biblical narrative is to be God's people, not just on Sundays. It's to be God's people everywhere. It's to be God's people in politics. It's to be God's people in sports. It's to be God's people in the community. And not by no, in the means, I'm not saying cultural wars. I'm not saying it's to be his people in politics so we can take over, or to be his people in sports so we can pray after every touchdown. I'm not saying that, right? I'm saying to be his people embodying the good news of Jesus in every area of life. Amen? Here, here's where the power comes from. When Paul begins to talk about the church here, here's what he says in verse, beginning in verse 18. He says this, And he, he who created Jesus, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Okay, here's what he's saying. Long story of redemption. We get to the church. He created all. It's tainted by sin. The part that we live in is that Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, is redeeming people. And not just people, but places. That's the whole idea of a cosmic gospel that we see in Colossians. And so the role of the church, he starts with people like you and me, very average people, very normal people, that we and ourselves, apart from Christ, cannot do nothing yet 
If he's the head of the church and we're connected to him, we can do absolutely all that he's called us to do. If he's the head of the church and we abide in him, we can produce fruit. The reason why we say all of life is all for Jesus is it's something we want to guide us, something we want to return to, something we want to repent to and draw our strength from is Jesus running the church. That we want to make sure that our churches, whatever congregation they are, are led by Jesus. It's the reason why none of us have a title that says senior pastor because we believe there's one senior pastor and his name is Jesus. Um, we, we believe that everything we do from teaching to the way we teach our children to the way we teach all people is all about Jesus. He's the head of the church. And Paul says he's preeminent. And that, that word says he surpasses all things. That, that the only power that we have is the power that flows from and that is in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. And, and, and I know I keep saying that, but I can't stress that enough. If you are ever a part of a church that doesn't make much of Jesus, you're missing out. You're not a part of a church, just not by saying Jesus, just not by saying the name of Jesus, but teaching all that he said, all that he's done, and resting in his power. Resting. Resting in his power. Uh, we were praying earlier before, before, we, um, before the worship band got up to lead, and thinking about Labor Day tomorrow, and most of us have the day off, and just thinking we have a day off and we can rest. And the, the thing I've been reminding myself is my rest doesn't come in a day off. And your rest doesn't come in a day off because tomorrow's going to be a day off and you know, I got to cut my, gr- no, I got to move my rocks around. Um, I, I have, there's, there's, things that, there's things that I have to do tomorrow, but my rest is found in Jesus. My rest is knowing that this world is not in my hands. My rest is knowing that my children are not in my hands. My rest is knowing that this, nothing, nothing is in my hands, but it's all in his hand and he's the head of the church and Jesus has a plan, Amen. So, so what the purpose of the church, if Jesus is the head of the church, just like creation, the purpose of the church is to bring glory to God. It's as simple as that. Everything we do to bring glory to God, to bring glory to the name of Jesus. The task, we do have a task, and that is to make disciples. So when we say we want to make disciples that see that all of life is all for Jesus, what we're trying to communicate that is um, the church is about Jesus, but that's just not what happens here at 9 and 1045. In fact, most of the life of the church happens Monday through Saturday. Because the church in itself is definitely not a building. You've heard this before. You're the church. Those of you in this room who are Christians, who place your faith in Jesus Christ, you're the church. You're the means. You're the means of what Jesus is saying. The way that I'm going to continue to show forth my glory in this world is through you. In fact, in Ephesians, he talks about the church showing the manifold wisdom to the principalities, meaning there's a cosmic reality about the local church, which to me is amazing, meaning the demons and the angels are looking at the church and going, Wow, this is what God is doing. First, first Peter chapter 1, verse 12, talking about Christ and how the prophets proclaimed that when Jesus would come and how they searched and they acquired, asking the Spirit who was telling them about what Christ would do. They wanted to know, and then after that, Paul says, or Peter says this, things in which angels longed to look. They wanted to look in how the gospel will be applied in our lives. Angels, they've been with God forever. They're perfect. And they're looking, saying, this is amazing what God does with simple people. That the, the, the local church has to be about Jesus. That means relationally, you need to take all that is in Christ. He's the head of the church. And when you do relationships, you do it in submission to Jesus Christ. That means in work, you can't shut off at work. You can't. And it's more than just having integrity. It's more than showing up on time and not leaving early and not checking your Facebook. It's more than that, right? It's walking into whatever industry you find yourself and saying, there isn't a creational value about this. God, Jesus created this, and it's supposed to bring him glory. 
Sin has entered this, and it's fractured. It's not going the way it's supposed to go. How is there a possibility and response to the gospel in this industry? Uh, whether it's economics, whether you're coaching a sports team, or whether you're raising a family. How, how do I bring the gospel to bear in word um, as well as in deed? How do I, as my role, will you, will you change education? Probably not. Um, are you going to change the way people parent? Probably not. But we should be a sign of where Jesus is taking it. That, that, that's what it means. And he, hear me now. When it comes to discipleship, teaching people to observe and obey all that Jesus did, it is only through the power of the gospel. And I have to stress that because Jesus is the head of the church. And not, we are not saved by Jesus' teaching. We are saved by the work of Jesus. His teaching guides us. His teaching gives us direction. But we are not saved by what he said. We're saved by what he did. Amen? Amen. Now I'm going to take it a step further. When we go to disciple people, we have to point them to what Jesus has did and then to what Jesus has said. Because if not, we will raise and teach people and change people only by behavior modification. We'll be no different than Pharisees. Parents, we do it all the time. We tell our children, don't do this because of this. You know, people are going to get you. You're going to go to hell, but stop, right? I mean, whatever it is that, that we teach them, um, it's usually out of fear. You don't want these things to happen to you. God's going to get you. And how many of you grew up in church thinking, God's going to get me? So that's how we've changed. That does nothing to our hearts. Or another way that we do it is we get in community. We get in a redemption community. We get in an arm ramp. And especially if you're young in the faith, or maybe you're not even a Christian, and you go, okay, this is how Christians act. And so your behavior begins to change, which I'm not saying is the bad thing, but your heart never changes. If Jesus is the head of the church, we have to draw from his power, not our ability to change. Meaning there, were, there was a moment in my life um, in discipleship where I had been a Christian for four or five years now, uh, my story was I got saved in college. I went to the uh, ASU, like I said, and, and I, had a, I, lived, I lived a life that, apart from Jesus, right? Tom Schrader says this, sin is fun unless you're doing it wrong. And I was like, yeah, he's right, because I had a lot of fun. Now, a lot of regrets, but I had a lot of fun. God saves me. As soon as that happens is I just want to become good. Like, I just want to become a good Christian. I want to I hang on to my born-again stick until Jesus comes back. And, and I did everything because I'm supposed to do it. Somebody said, get accountability. So I had accountability guys in my group, um, in my life, and they'd ask me questions and so forth. Years into it, we were, in a, we were in a study going through some discipleship, and the guy who wrote the study said this, Christians don't only repent of the things that they do wrong, but in response to Jesus, they repent of the reasons of why they did right. And I remember going, why would you ever repent for doing right? Isn't that the purpose of just being good? And the guy who was leading it was absolutely not. The purpose is that you're centered around Jesus. And when you see Jesus and you trust Jesus, now you want to follow him out of love, not out of fear. And I thought in that moment, my biggest battle was sexual sin. And I stopped. But I never changed. One of the reasons why I changed, and we all do this, is because I didn't want to have to tell my buddy Eli, who was my accountability buddy, buddy that I had failed. And so out of fear of human approval, I changed. I didn't change because I said God is good and so I don't have to look elsewhere. I can follow him. I changed out of the fear of man. So when we say Jesus is the head of church, when we go to disciple people, we have to make sure we're pointing them back to Jesus. Whenever there's a paradigm, love your wife. Love your wife. Why? Because Christ laid his life down for the church. Why? Submit to your husband. Why? Because he's a nice guy? Probably not. All right? Submit, submit, submit to your husband because Jesus submitted the Father. Everything that the Bible gives us as imperative, it is always rooted in what Christ has done. The power that we always have is in what Christ has done. Never in what we do, but what he's done. Now, out of love and gratitude, it flows into what we do. Do you guys get that? 
That, 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 that's the power that we have in Jesus. It has to be about him. Now, here's, here's what I struggle with. I can teach you how, and I can teach you the word, and that there's no area in life that you can check out on. You can't check out on work. You're there for a reason, and, and not just some, you know, arbitrary reason. You're there to be a Christian, and in whatever you do, do that in a way that shows honor to God. Um, and you say, okay, what does that look like? Rain Grudem in his book, Business of the Glory of God, I think explains it in a way that we can at least take home. Um, as we want to, as a church now, embody Jesus in the way that we play, in the way that we make things, in the way that we hang out, he says, the best way to bring glory to someone is to imitate them, to do what they do. And I get it. Now having two boys, um, my oldest son is, is becoming more and more like me in a lot of ways. And some of that is really, really good. And some of that is, is, is really bad, especially now that college football season has started. Bad, right? And so, and so one of the things that my, my friend comes over the other day and he goes, hey, Noah, do you like football? And he, and he says, yeah, I have two teams. And so he's imitating me. He goes, I have a college team and my college team is Sparky's team. I'm like, yeah. And then, and then I'm thinking, he has another team. He goes, yeah, I have another team. And my other favorite team, you know, you're always asking, I wonder if my kid's going to know the gospel. I want to know if they're going to know Jesus. And then when he said this answer, I knew it. He goes, my other team is the Raiders. And I thought, you are so saved, right? <laughs> no, I, I'm just, but there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an imitation where he imitates me. He walks as pigeon-toed as I walk. And I'm watching like, this is amazing, right? Um, we have to think of that when we see Jesus. Is that whatever we do, whether in word and deed, as Colossians says, do it to bring glory to our Father. So if you're changing a diaper, are you changing a diaper complaining? Or are you changing a diaper saying, this is my role to help this child? Because if I didn't change it, this would be bad for him or her and everybody else around, right? Um, as you teach, um, as you instruct, as you work, just think about it. As you drive into work on Tuesday, how do I glorify God? As you drive, before you even get to work, right? Um, how am I glorifying? Am I a complainer? Is this bring, am I imitating Jesus? And what I do, am I imitating him? And it's going to look different because you all have different industries. And that's, that's a practical way but you're going to get exhausted and you're going to get tired and you're going to get worn out and you're going to wonder, where do I draw my power from? And I'm going to close with this. If I told you to live your life all for Jesus and to do it relationally and to do it recreationally and recreation and to even do it vocationally, um, there would be no power in that. I would just be giving you a few things to do and, and, and not from someone to draw from. And there's no power in that. If I said engage politics in a certain way, um, one, we, most of us have an understanding of how we're supposed to engage politics. I'm not even going to go there. Last hour got a little crazy. So next time, if you're my people, I get after that. But um, I'll save that for Luke, right? Um, is it, there's, a, there's a certain way that, that, we, that we have, but we have to understand, one, not what Jesus has done and what Jesus has said, also what Jesus is doing. Let me, let me close with this. This is the part that I feel like as Christians we lack in. We get the gospel up to the cross. And most of our hymns, most of our songs, most of the books that we read get up to the cross. Meaning we understand creation and God's good creation. We understand sin, that we're depraved, and we need Jesus. And Jesus goes to the cross. He lives the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died by faith in him, by grace. We are forgiven, past, present, and future. And so we have this picture of Jesus, but we don't understand the resurrection and the ascension and that Jesus sits next to the right hand of the Father and he reigns. We, we, we don't understand the power that we have in Christ that he reigns. So we understand that he's forgiven us and that, that, that he, we, we, are, we are forgiven, but we don't understand the power that he gives us not only to just 
get us into heaven, but the power that sustains us in this life to grow in him, that same gospel truth. Meaning we need to understand not just salvation and how you and I are saved by confessing with our mouth and believing with our hearts, but what is the purpose of salvation? Salvation in itself, um, meaning salvation of souls, is not the end. That's not, that God didn't just say, I just want to save souls. But we, when we read the totality of the Bible, we see that salvation is a means to an end. And that end is a new heaven and a new earth where he's redeeming all things. Hence, all of life is all for Jesus. And even as he consummates, everything is for him. There is the power of salvation. There is the, the goal of salvation and the means of salvation. Here's what I mean. The power of salvation, verse, verse 19. It says, in him, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Meaning Jesus is God. He's not just a portion of God, he's God. He shows us what God is like, that God himself was pleased. The Greek word there is thelema. I mean, he has a pleasure. He, he loves that Jesus is fully God, that, that the only power that we have is Jesus. And I am going to go down there. The only power we have is Jesus. It's not which way you tried to homeschool your kids or public school your school, your kids or Christian school your kids. We have this argument all the time. Here's what I'm convinced in Tempe. Um, one of our pastors is going to homeschool his kids. And then someone else is going to charter school and somebody else is going to Christian school. And we're, we're not going to send our kids to school, right? Forget it. You can figure it out, right? Just so we can say, that's not, the, listen, that's not the issue. We're not going to die on that. There's no power in education. The other issue that we're constantly arguing with is people thinking there's power in politics. Listen to me. The, the gospel is the only power that we have. Jesus nowhere in the Bible says politics. He says the power of the gospel is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I'm not saying that you shouldn't engage in politics. You should. As a civil duty, as understanding your citizenship as an American and as a citizenship of heaven, you should participate. I'm just saying don't put so much stock in it. There, there, there are people, there are cultural wars. I mean, I've heard two people in the past week say this. There's no way that a Christian could be a Democrat. And I go, all right, you can say that, but know that in saying that, You've just said that 99% of African-American Christians just got unsaved. I'm, 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 I'm serious about this. We, we as a people, if you're here and you're not a Christian, just listen to me yell and then tell your friend, that dude's tripping. But I'm not the normal pastor, so that's right. All right? As a people in Jesus Christ, we cannot put our faith in the things that we see. Our faith can only be in Jesus. At the end of the Bible, we do not see an elephant or a donkey. <laughs> We see Jesus. We see Jesus. And so he's the power of salvation. And the goal of salvation, verse 20, says this. And through him, through this power of Jesus, he's reconciling to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth. Here's what's happening. In Romans, as well as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there's the language of reconciliation. And how the church has been given the ministry of reconciliation. That word reconcile in both of those two passages is meaning you and I, by faith, being reconciled to God. That we were strangers and now we are children. That we were enemies and now that we are friends. That we had a debt, but now he's redeemed us. But when it talks about reconciliation in Colossians, it's not just God and man. Because the, the language here in Colossians means fully, thoroughly, and completely, absolutely the reconciliation of all things. So all the things that you desire, the, the desire to have good drink, the desire to have good food, and the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus is saying, I'm reconciling that. All the things that were supposed to be in creation, that were tainted by sin, Jesus is saying through the power of the gospel, the end goal of salvation is that he's reconciling it. 
Saving of souls was a means. That's why we share the gospel. But just getting saved individually is not the end. The end is at the church to be a witness, to be a sign in all of life what Jesus is doing. Amen? We work, we parent, we spend our money, we give our money, we serve people in such a way that say, this is where history is going. That every single person in this room and every single person around you should look at your life and say, this is what my life would look like if I was a Christian. That we are a preview to the movie that is going to happen. That they should look at, we are a foretaste to what God is doing. It starts with Jesus. Now, I, wanna, I, I just want to explain this. When it says all things, this is not universalism. This is not saying that every single person will believe in Jesus. Which gets me to the last point, the means. The means is a bloody cross and an empty tomb. We can talk about art and politics and education. We can talk about all of life being all for Jesus. But at the end of the day, if Jesus did not get on the cross, Jesus did not get off the cross, if Jesus did not get out of the tomb, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. The power of the gospel is in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and has given his people the, the Holy Spirit. The second part of verse 20 says, Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. L- l- hear me this. There is no gospel without blood. There is no all of life being all for Jesus without a cross. That if we don't proclaim the gospel and demonstrate the gospel, we're, we're lacking. Meaning we need to talk about Jesus and what he's done, but we also need to live it. And so when I said this is not universalism, that everyone is not going to get in on this, is meaning every, the gospel is reconciling all things that did not have volition, meaning creation. Creation didn't have a choice. The reason why creation was subjected to fertility was because of Adam's sin and our sin. Now, angels had volition, and humanity has a volition. So the demons that rejected God, they rejected them. People in this room and people in this world that reject the good news of Jesus Christ, they will be reconciled only to judgment. Every knee and every tongue will bow down and confess that he is Lord. They will understand him, but that doesn't mean that they will live with him forever. And I know that's harsh language. I just want to make clear, it's not him reconciling and so you're like, I could do whatever I want to do. I need to believe in Jesus. No, no, no. It's through the cross. It's through the cross that God is reconciling. Amen? So the so what for us, proclamation and demonstration is two of our values. Because all of life is offered Jesus, because God is reconciling all things in the work and through the work of Jesus Christ, we have to tell people about Jesus and we have to show our life for Jesus. If we only tell people about Jesus and we don't live it, there's no credibility. We know plenty of people like that. If we only show people about the gospel living and we only live in obedience to the imperatives, but we never explicitly talk about Jesus, we don't have the p- true power of the true gospel, that's useless too. Here's why. As you guys should understand this, and I'm not trying to rip on any religion. I'm just being honest, contextual. There are plenty of religions surrounding this church that talk about a Jesus that doesn't have a true gospel, and they live lives far better than ours. In fact, when they become our neighbors, we're like, yes, property value up, right? <laughs> we have to have both. A potent gospel that talks about the bloody cross and the empty tomb and a life that lives it and a power that is drawn not by what we do, but, what we do, but by grace in Jesus. All of life is offered Jesus. Why don't you guys bow your heads and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross and we thank you for the tomb and we thank you.